What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Hello, friends. Hi, everybody. You know, ever since that new intro, I'm always weirded out by how to segue into this part because I kind of say what's up, folks, at the beginning. So is it okay if I greet you in a different way or is it off brand for me to do something like that? I'm not sure. Who cares? You're here. I'm here. I've got Christopher Scott on the show today. I couldn't be more excited for this one. Christopher is the owner and design director of Sue Design based out of Savannah, Georgia. He's also the director of e-learning at SCAD, which is the Savannah College of Art and Design. And that company is not Sue, S-I-O-U-X or S-O-O. It's Sue, like S-O-U-S, Sue Chef, which might hopefully give you some context as to why I was so excited to chat with him about a wide range of topics, everything from what chefs should do about Yelp reviews, the crucial moment when Sue will work best for a chef, uh, how to think about menu narrative, the most inspiring or most thoughtfully designed toaster on the market, and why that's important, and then how we as chefs can use design to make the experience of eating your food a little bit more memorable. I was actually initially advertised to buy Sue Design on Instagram, and some of you might have been as well, and I ended up reaching out because, as some of you know, I'm really looking to bring my apron to market. I've got a couple other projects like in my head that I love to bring to life, but I'm completely out of my element in the design space. But have no fear, Christopher and his team at Sue Design are all about helping chefs like me bring these ideas into reality. We aren't working together professionally yet. I don't think I'm at that point yet. I need to get, um, he mentions somewhere in the interview where that time is technically when you have a certain amount of funding behind you, when the idea is really fleshed out, Um, And I really feel, at least from our conversation, that if him and I were ever to work together in the future, it would be something where we're partners in the business in some capacity. I am not so romantic as to say that I want to own 100% of some of these projects. I just want to see them out there in the world. So if that means uh, bringing it to market faster because I'm able to give up a little bit more control, a little bit more equity in the company, I'm totally okay with that. And at least in this point in my career, that's kind of like where my head's at. So uh, to, to answer any questions of like, is this something where you guys are working together and this is you pitching Christopher and Sue. No, that's not the point of this interview. The point of the interview is because I'm just really curious in what this guy is doing and I wanted to get to know him and this interview was a great way to do that. I'm actually going to let him give you the true elevator pitch on the company and elaborate because he does it so much better than I can. I will chat with you folks again after the incredibly stimulating interview with the intensely curious Christopher Scott. I really enjoy getting a sense of what my guests are obsessed with at the moment. I call, I I ask for a, you know, kind of a state of the union on your area of work specifically, but this doesn't have to be necessarily design focused. It could be, you know, a a, a new pair of running shoes. So, so what's got you excited right now? Yeah, that's a really good, good question. A great place to start. Um, So I think that uh, designers have to be obsessed. They have to be people who, um, find interest in things that the normal people out there don't find interest in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the key traits to me of, of these type of people that I surround myself with. So um, I'm currently obsessed with um, 
you know, I, we're working on some products here in the studio and um, the way Frise um, is suspended on a, a, a rod, um, the way that um, solid and liquid might interact on a plate, you know, just these very esoteric, um, strange things in, in culinary experience um, that, you know, I think designers have a, a different eye for. Um, I love binging certain Netflix shows. Um, I'm currently obsessed with Blue Planet. I love watching these little narratives happen between fish and these, these stories that, that go on and coral reefs. Um, and we've been looking a lot at um, certain production techniques. I'm, I'm fascinated right now with um, some advances in nylon 3D printing. Um, there's some things happening in 3D printing. You know, it's been around for a while, but um, we're very close to being off, able to offer uh, direct-to-market um, pieces in, in a new way. So those things, you know, are just things that make my my needle rise. And as a kind of a spoiler for everybody listening, this is kind of my opportunity to take some notes on things that I want to bring up later. So what I'm, I'm going to bring up a couple of those things in a second, but can you give some examples of nylon 3D printed products? I don't think I've ever handled one or do any come to mind as far as like, or is it just such an emerging technology that gives you this creative flexibility? Yeah, that's, uh, that's another good question. So, um, you know, I think a lot of us think of 3D printing as these uh, chunky plastic things that maybe look like they fell out of a vending machine, right? Um, you know, but there's really advances that um, make the tactile experience of products that are 3D printed beautiful and wonderful. Um, the some of the pr- uh, properties of you know polymers that um, allow water to not permeate um, other liquids too, and that we're almost to a place where you can directly print food safe. Um, prints basically it's it's incredible right. so um they, they kind of have a, a, a beautiful quality there's a lot of grays happening a lot of speckled products um things that will i think eventually hit uh restaurants and um chefs will be able to take advantage of so um you know over at sue we watch this very carefully about what materials are coming on the radar and, and what the opportunities might be and using that not only gives you an advantage of form, but does it give you any advantage of cost yet? Or is is the technology not there yet where it's like it costs a little bit more so you can only make a couple of pieces, but the result you get is just so far, far beyond what's currently possible? I think, you know, we, we, we've done research with chefs and we've, we've asked them, you know, what costs are manageable for you um, if you were going on the far end of producing something, what is a, what would be a barrier to you? Mm-hmm. Um, we, it's funny. I keep hearing this, uh, this number, uh, this figure $30. Uh, I'm not willing to go over $30 a plate. Interesting. Um, and that is true. I found in restaurants, um, across the board. So, um, that's to me a barrier and a, a limitation that we're trying to always keep in mind. Um, you know, it's a big risk for a lot of chefs to um, bring in a new collection of plates, even if it's just for trialing a new dish. Um, it's it's a cost investment. And um, some industries that have taken advantage of 3D printing for a while now, um, it's not a barrier for them. But bringing this type of innovation to the restaurant world, um, we just need to keep in mind what the realities uh, chefs face are. So uh, we try and aim for everything under around $30, maybe pushing it a little over, but um we just have to keep the, the market in mind. Sure. So 
I want to take it back to another point you brought up, and then that's going to lead me into my next question. You brought up uh, Blue Planet. I certainly watched uh, all of the Planet Earth episodes, so I know exactly uh, what kind of geek mode you're in with that kind of stuff. Do you do do you watch shows like that to kind of zone out, or do you find that the you know the element of nature brings a certain element of inspiration? Mm. Yeah, certainly the latter. Um, I think Got we it. see solutions in nature that are so beyond sometimes what we produce as humans. Um, they're more efficient. They're more, uh, they, they use energy in different ways. They uh, connect to f- food ecosystems, um, transfers of energy. And, you know, we look at biomimicry. What can we do that nature has done better than, than we have? Um, so, yeah, I think I don't really believe in this idea of zoning out. I think mm-hmm. the creative brain is either always on consciously or unconsciously. Uh, to me, it's an unconscious thing. I like to just, you know, watch watch the fish swim, um, watch the coral <laughs> grow in, in time lapse, and um, think about my place in all of it and um, what contribution I can make. You know, with with these things in front of me. Totally. So, to to lead me in, then, do you find that chefs kind of have this very interesting perspective as far as like using? Uh, either things inspired by nature or natural product. I'm think so personally, I'm, I can't think of a time when I plated food on a 3d printed plate, but I have plated a bunch of stuff on, you know, hand thrown ceramics. So mm-hmm. do you find that you have any pushback when you kind of say that this was, uh, an artificially, I mean, I hate to say artificially made because it was designed by a human, you know, and maybe it is inspired by nature to create this form that wasn't previously possible so i guess i'd be curious to hear about your mindset on like that fine riding that line between the artificial and the the natural Hmm. i think that's a a really interesting philosophical question um Hmm. it gets into what is natural and what isn't natural uh, and we're quickly beginning to blur that line across many different disciplines um you look at what's happening with family planning you look at what's happening with um, the idea of political systems. I mean, just definitions are changing so fast that um, we want to always, I think, preserve and maintain natural um, relationships and ecosystems that have existed far longer than we have. Um, we're in, we need to be in harmony with them, but we have opportunities now that, uh, you know, just to go back to this example of a 3D printed plate, um, we're not completely there yet with true 3D printing a plate. There's some some issues around, you know, bacteria growing and cracks like that mm-hmm. and um, the way may, gr- grease might get in it and the, the longevity of the, of the product. But um, I think we just want to see products that um, take advantage of the technologies in front of us. And that's really, that's always been the case with food. Uh, you go back to um, the way corn was produced, and that was a high-tech invention at the time. You know, a mortar, mortar and pestle was uh, innovative. Um, so many other examples in the history of food, and certainly a culinary anthropologist can can go into that more than I can. But, um, you know, we, we, that we have to always take advantage of what's in front of us and what's next and explore the right ways to use it and the, way, the right way to express it and obviously respect the ingredients and um, find that overlap between all those things. Absolutely. So just based on, you know, these first 
couple minutes of us chatting, you're you're very very naturally curious, and you are, you know, clearly clearly not um, singularly disciplined as far as like I'm going to just be a designer. You kind of uh, see the see the world through multiple different lenses and and keep your eyes very very wide open. Where where does that come for you? And and maybe you can incorporate some of that into kind of like your journey till now. Like what what has happened prior to this that's led you to where you are now? Yeah, that's a, that's a good story. So I started my creative career um, early, um, around 20, and um, got an internship in Chicago, where I'm from, uh, in advertising. So I was an art director, graphic designer. Um, for those who've seen Mad Men, were the, um, yep. the one who partners with the copywriter to produce, um, you know, probably all the stuff that saturates you day in and day out. Sure. So I... Um, I was working in advertising for about 10 years in Chicago at all the quote unquote A-list agencies you could want to work for. And I was I worked on about 30 brands in about 10 years. I worked on things um, in the pharmaceutical industry. I worked in consumer packaged goods like Gatorade. I worked with sports. I worked with um, education, startups, uh, furniture companies. I worked with... Um, um, appliances and credit card companies. Yeah. And the, the trick to the, in advertising in this is to become a, kind of a hyper expert quickly and um, stand back from it and still keep that consumer's perspective of what matters and what matters quickly. Um, and so I, I developed the skill, I think, being exposed to so many different companies, um, creating communications and ads for them that you just have to learn to be fascinated fast. Um, so that, that experience led me to wanting to go more into design and I decided to, um, pause the advertising world and, and leave it and, um, go into pursue my master's in design management at Savannah college of art and design, moved my life down here and, um, completed that program. That program for me really tied together a lot of things. It, we, we take people in creative industries like architecture, interior design, product design, um, and we focus on the issues that create the conditions for innovation uh, and the successful um, adoption of those innovations, whatever your industry is. So we focus a lot sure. on design research. We focus on business model design um, and innovation. We focus on uh, what is innovation, the history of it, and um a lot of uh, create, facilitating creativity too. So when you combine all these different kind of superpowers, we just, um, we're, we're people who then go into our specific disciplines and we say, um, what's innovative, how do we make it work and how does it happen fast and profitable? Right. So to take it back, you going from advertising to, um, design, there's a story from this chef Heston Blumenthal when he had this dish in Paris and it was kind of like this moment where he was like oh I need to switch and I need to be a chef he was also he was also a kid at the time but did you ever have a moment that happened with a certain product or you were working with a certain company that had a certain mindset that made made it possible for you to do that switch or it was just a what was it something else where it was just like it was the right cocktail of creativity and 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 all these other things that you were already into yeah, uh, failure. So um, uh -huh. I thought going into my program that I was going to go into the contract furniture market, um, you know, designing furniture that might be in contemporary offices, working with some of those big manufacturers. And 
Um, it didn't go that way. I actually interviewed with um, global design director of a, a company that will remain unnamed, but um, yep. really bombed an interview and uh, it just wasn't a fit. And um, I, <clears throat> I just sort of had a moment where I thought, you know, what do I really want to do? Do I want to keep hitting this hard and, and go in this direction? And I thought back to some of the moments in my program where I was in class with some brilliant people um, from all over, you know, different walks of life. And the common denominator with them, they wanted the outcome of going to Uber, going to Google, going to Nike, um, top brands. And this was at a time where I was starting to see um, study chefs a little bit more. How do they operate? Um, I, I was looking at specifically uh, Grant Ockett's technique of flavor bouncing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I notice it in some of your drawings that you do. Like when you're talking about, you know, when you're outlining things, um, including that that pamphlet that you sent me, uh, there's a lot of very similar things with that. Um, yeah. So and what yeah, fascinated could... with me, me with this technique was he produced a dish with, I think it was around 21 ingredients. Uh-huh. And um, the, the dish could only be conceived from mind mapping. Right. And there's just no, there's no other way to create it. Basically, the rule is, for those who don't know, um, you list a main ingredient, you list a complementing ingredient, and they go together, um, right. flavor-wise. You keep building that profile and those connections. Um, and all of a sudden, you the, the rule is, once something doesn't fit or contrast with something else, it's out. Right. And you sort of kind of have to try and build the Jenga tower as large as you can. Uh, so anyway, he comes up with a dish with 21 ingredients, um, but it's purely a process of design and technique. And I think for me, that was really the aha moment. I thought this is design this, I can contribute to this. I want to contribute to this. And all of my peers, nobody's thinking of this entire amazing industry with these brands, you know, truly great restaurants that are on par with the, the greatest brands of our time, you know, the Googles and the, the Ubers. So um, I started to concept a, a model that, that served them and, and brought these techniques to, to hopefully partner with them. Sure. So where, when you had this epiphany moment with, with Grant Atkins, were you still in Chicago or had you gone to Georgia already? No, I was in Georgia. I was in Savannah here um, in class. And it's funny because I used to ride the bus every day in Chicago uh, to work and I would pass Alinea and it was this, you know, it's this very nondescript um, yep. building on the outside. It's, it's, you wouldn't know it's there unless you knew. Um, but it, it just reminded me of, wow, that place that, you know, you were connected to in time and space at one point, um, you're now connected to it in a different way. And, um, you know, I just think that, you know, certainly coming from Chicago, the, the food narrative there is, is incredible anything from you can have a the best meal of your life for six dollars up to 600 you know absolutely absolutely so fast fast forwarding it till now you guys are based in georgia can you share a little bit about why you chose savannah as your home base and um kind of kind of because you, you you went to school there but then you decided to stay there as opposed to you know going back to chicago or going to san francisco or, or whatever so tell me a little bit about georgia yeah, so I think it's a state that would surprise a lot of people. It's got a um, probably a reputation and and some things come to mind when, you know, if you're not from Georgia or from the coast, you, you think of, well, what, what happens there? But um, it, chose, it chose me more than I chose it. I think um, Savannah is a town where um, design is really in its DNA. It's a city that's laid out on a grid of parks and um, – 
one of the more interesting urban designs in the, in the United States. So early on, um, civic planner named Oglethorpe designed the plan called the Oglethorpe plan. And, um, it led to the way that the town interacts with each other. So citizens came into these parks, used them, socialized. And, um, to this day, you know, when you're walking down the street, you see people, you know, um, for the size of the town that Savannah is, it still retains, um, some outcome of the design choices that were made really early on. So I think it's a fascinating place from that point of view. Um, secondly, I, from an operation point of view, you know, if you're in one city, if you're in Chicago, you can serve a lot of potential clients, but you're as disconnected from other markets, you know, New York, San Fran, DC that, um, have valuable places too. So I'm no further connected from those in my opinion, than um, than I would be if I were located in a main base, uh, Another key decision of, of this is that um, we have a large service tier around virtual collaboration. Right. Um, I'm highly connected and, and lead um, Savannah College of Art and Design's e-learning group. Yep. And a lot of those insights from that from that group of virtual workflow and where things are going, um, uh, they apply to you know the way that Sue operates. So um, yeah, chefs can have a very fulfilling experience with Sue online. And they don't need to be uh, with us directly. One of the biggest things that uh, makes virtual collaboration successful is voice, actually. You know, it's more important to hear someone than to see someone, in my opinion. Um, you develop a little bit different rapport and you um, just you, you begin to hear what, how someone you know, views something. There's more intonation and inflection. And um, so it's something that we're iterating and we're um, looking forward to collaborating more with, with, with some, some clients, but um, yeah, a, a strong service to your looking forward is, is definitely virtual collaboration. So um, that's where we're at right now. And the plan as we scale and grow are to pick the right strategic cities as our client base grows to serve them better and open up um, very small collaborative spaces in those cities that, that serve the markets. I think the, the fact that you, you were comfortable uh, coming to terms with that and not only uh, accepting it for what it is, but also like taking advantage of it as like a very 2019 way to do business. Because like you said, it, you could very much so get caught up in the fact that, uh, well, we don't have a Michelin guide here in Georgia, so we can't really do this here kind of thing. But that, that, it's just not true, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think there are, you know, there's a handful of cities across the U.S. that are, are experiencing um, innovation booms right now. You know, you, obviously you've got the the traditional, you know, you got Brooklyn, you got Oakland, you've got um, parts of the West, other small parts of the West Coast. But um, those are healthy innovation centers that have been going for a while and, and they need to push harder to keep innovating. Uh, markets change and, you know, there's small towns, in my opinion, like Savannah, um, even Boise, Idaho, uh, or Idaho. Idaho yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. Um, they've got a huge design scene now. There's a lot of uh, interior designers going there, and um, I think that's going to be a trend that increases. You know, one of I think um, a few amazing restaurants that have popped up this year have been in really small, surprising markets. Um, so I, I predict that'll keep keep going that way. Absolutely, I have I've I've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast before, but I have this prediction that uh, Michelin will will take its uh, a, a piece out of its own book, very similar to how it does some other countries in the world, especially in Europe. And it will, 
break down the way that it presents its guides here in the U.S. into into very regional specific guides. So instead of having San Francisco or the Bay Area being uh, one of the quote unquote cities that Michelin recognizes, it will just eventually be whether it's California or the West Coast, and then you know places like up here in Seattle and Portland can get finally recognized in the Michelin Guide. And mm-hmm. L.A., like God forbid, like there's so many restaurants in L.A. that are just slaying it right now and there's no chance for them to get a, a star or a, even recognized because there's just no representation there so I'm, I'm right there with you and i totally see it becoming this thing where you know why doesn't the south have its own region as a michelin area yeah and you think you know there's arguments to be made that the south is the most culinary diverse area in the u.s um i think that argument is is pretty founded and um you have to think too, who is the customer base of Michelin? You know, it's definitely chefs right now. Yeah. Uh, yep. that, that's certainly fine. Uh, but I don't think the average person is um, using the Michelin product in the way it was intended. Yeah, no way. Not even yeah. close. Yeah. So um, we've gone a lot on about your past, about kind of what you're working on now. The people that are listening might be wondering what does Sue Design actually do? So if, if, you know, if you ran into it, somebody that was listening or, or, you know, myself in an elevator, what is that kind of pitch um, on the way up that you tell them about Sue Design? Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty simple. We empower chefs with design. So we um, have one ser- service tier that works with them on product design. It might be a product that they have a loose idea for and they want to quickly prototype and deliver it to their tables. It might be a longer process where they say, this is a loose opportunity. What do you guys think? Um, Let's explore the product design process. And uh, the second tier that we have is uh, collaboration. And this is the most powerful way that we can collaborate and and partner with chefs. So rather than um, the need to you know, revise your organizational chart or your, your headcount at your restaurant, you can call us up and say, Hey, I would love to do eight workshops with you. And from those, let's talk about what the insights are that come out of them. Uh, we have techniques that, um, take advantage of a specific chef's culinary insight. Uh, everything we do starts with an interview where I gain, um, and Sue gains insight into what sparks that chef, what's their specific take on the type of cuisine that they um, are trying to produce. Um, and from there, we know we build on that. And you'd be amazed at how two chefs working in traditional French might have completely different um, ways of approaching it. And they actually should differentiate themselves from a brand perspective um, and take advantage of that through design. Absolutely. There might be, it might lead to a plate, it might lead to stemware, uh, flatware, it might lead to a certain light designed um, that, you know, hits hits the table a certain way. It might be um, a table itself, you know, that we can be ambitious and we should be ambitious. And I think the customer is now in a place where they expect and um, they will reward chefs who, who go down that road. I'm going to share a line from your book that's available on your site, and it's it's a it's a large coffee table book, and it's beautiful. And 
there's a shot that you have where on one page it says in big bold letters, we're not chefs. And then I'm going to paraphrase a quote here from the other page, the, the opposite page. It says, quote, empathy is one of our stock ingredients. Sue purposefully approaches the culinary world with an acute angle because seeing an opportunity often requires distance and reverent naivete. Can you break that down a little for everybody? Because I think it's important to uh, chefs, chefs with especially large egos behind them can often push back to someone else telling them that, you know, they want to influence their creativity. Yeah. And I think they have good reason to do that. Um, not everyone is able to contribute in a creative way that's productive or, or beneficial. So yeah, uh, we're not chefs. We don't try to be, we don't get it twisted. We, um, we're designers and designers have for a long time served other industries. They've worked in, um, they've served the transportation industry. They've served the medical industry. Um, it's a new thing for designers to jump into the culinary world. And I think uh, empathy on our end is a deal where we very quickly try to establish the fact that we are not here to um, tell you what to cook, how to cook it, how to serve it. Um, that that's up to you. That's why you've devoted your life to this. It's, um, it's more of a collaborative process and it's a, it's a process that takes advantage of, um, ways of thinking, ways of producing insight. Um, a lot of, we know we have a lot of research techniques that combined, you know, create high level insights and it may be something very simple. It may be something unexpected. It may be something that, um, just goes in a direction that, a chef had no idea, but it, it, it could be really fulfilling. Um, and so, you know, that, that's where we bring that cross industry, that, um, that different, um, view of things, no pun intended to the table. We, we, we just think that, um, chefs who broaden their skills always benefit. And the more people they include, whether it's, you know, I think they're, at this point, they're pretty comfortable. Certainly the molecular gastronomists have taken a lot of plays from the scientific community, um, from chemists, from phys- uh, you know, people who specialize in physics, and um, they've, they've benefited from that. And they, they've kind of realized they can do this on their own. Uh, we might get further down the road, you know, 10 years from now and design thinking might be a very common thing in, in a chef's practice. There might be dozens and dozens of people working in fantastic restaurants with these skills. Um, right now there aren't. So I see it as an innovation. Um, that's what led Sue to being crafted. And, um, but yeah, we, we, we're interested in preserving chefs for the next century. I think, you know, we're not trying to do anything to see them go away. Totally. But I feel like that, that was such an impactful uh, ending to that quote for me, as far as like when you're working these super long days and not only are you dealing with, you know, your fish supplier, but your, your line cook uh, has an issue with their family. And then, you know, like something happened in the bar that you have to take care of the, the fact that um, you talk about, in, in, encouraging a, a perspective from distance and uh, maybe like I haven't seen this yet before is a very very impactful thing where it's like you're 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 being a third party that that uh, comes with context but you're also being able to you know look at it with a pair of fresh eyes I just I just think it's really really uh, impactful and I think more people should think about that as opposed to clenching this thing that is 
you know, their baby so tightly. Um, right. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, trying to think of some good examples that might illustrate, um, some other design products that have come about from these, these, we call them kind of parallel insights or even sometimes forced, um, connections. Sure. You know, when you take someone in one industry and you put them in another, all of a sudden you have an innovation. Ah, um, you wouldn't think that there's any overlap between insights in NASCAR and an, an operating room. Yep. But uh, some, you know, research has been done by some a group of designers trying to improve the operating room, and they said, you know, what we're it's really similar to a pit crew. You know, we're working with speed; it's vital. Things have to be precise. Um, the mechanics have to be perfect. Why don't we take go and observe? pit crews and see if we can bring any of those insights into the, the OR. And um, they did. And, and a lot of things in the OR have been improved because of that kind of parallel industry. So if you are, if you're always only looking at um, solutions to come from the kitchen, I think you're, you're going to miss them. I also think about um, the fact that the, the microplane started as a woodworking tool. If I'm, if I'm correct in that, where it's like it initially started as a way to kind of, you know, uh, refine the edges of a, a bench or a dresser that you're working on. And lo and behold, it works great on cheese as well. So I think that's a really funny um, kind of crossover. I'm going to bring up one more quote here from that book, and I want to hear you riff on it a little bit. It says, quote, humbly, we seek partnerships with chefs with the strongest, most succinct points of view. Very few chefs actually want to be different or challenge convention, despite living in a time and global culture where there is no greater platform for such an ambition, end quote. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that so many people kind of settle into, you know, whatever the status quo is at the time or, or chasing trends or um, what have you? I think in many ways, creativity is becoming uh, consumable. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is it's very easy to the moment you feel a creative impulse to not pursue it and to instead as a chef, maybe turn on chef's table, go on Instagram, um, flip through the cookbooks of people who've inspired you. We're, we're becoming more accustomed to living in an ecosystem where there's filler and there's, there's all these moments that interrupt true creative pursuit. Um, it, it requ- you know, I think true creative pursuit requires a lot of, uh, just thinking and, and self-reflection and assessment and, um, turning things off and, and disconnecting and, um, you know, I, I think I'm looking to partner with chefs who who look at themselves, ask themselves if they must cook. You know, there's um, the writer Rilke wrote about um, writers who, no matter how it went for them, they are people who still have to write. Um, I, I think in a lot of chefs' bones, they're, they're people who, they would be doing this at home. Um, mm-hmm. I know chefs here in Savannah who've left their positions and they don't stop cooking. They're They're making stuff at home. They, they're, they're doing, they're, they keep innovating. They have to innovate. Um, they're people who relate to the world through food. And so those are the type of people who I think would benefit the most from partnering with someone like, you know, Sue, they, they, they need that partner who pushes them, who says, this is what I heard, but maybe you meant this. Um, they need that partner who can translate some very loose insights into actionable things on their table. And um, 
we need, you know, their, their time is so burdened already that they don't have time. You know, you look at a lot of chefs who, um, they should prototype, they should experiment, they should, you know, say, what is this thing in Home Depot? What can it do in my kitchen? I, I think that's cool. Um, but their time is already so thin. I mean, even getting a half hour with some of them is very difficult and it needs to be, um, you know, tr- every minute's treated like a treasure. So, um, empowering them to free them up a little bit and to bring the, those creative ideas that complement their unique take on, on the culinary experiences is key. Absolutely. So going back to what you said, and I think a couple people might've been able to relate to this when, you know, you get that, that jolt of inspiration, but like you said, it's so much easier to consume. If, you know, anybody is listening and then I'm going to ask for your, your insight here. If, if anybody has that moment where all of a sudden they, they feel like, oh man, what if I could do this thing with a mango? Or, you know, what if I salted it in this way? When you feel that impulse, what would you advise chefs to do instead? Is it just to cook or is, is there some sort of exercise that you practice with your clients to make sure that that creativity gets captured for them as opposed to consumed? Hmm. I do it. Uh, don't do drop, it, yeah. drop, drop everything at that moment and go do it. If you're, um, at the doctor's office and you, an idea for mango pops in your head, just leave and go try it. You know yep, what I mean? Yep. Yep. I, I think you, you, it's easy to say, Oh, I've got the idea. I'll do it tonight. Oh, I've got it. I'll do it tomorrow. Um, no, it, you know, in product design, we, we call this moment just the sprint, you know, it's like go and you, you, you've got your direction, you've got your inspiration. Um, that the point of it is to fail fast mm. and the faster you can fail, then the sooner you'll bring something of value to the table. So, um, you know, cut the mango in a different way. Um, serve a mushroom upside down. Um, I don't know. Totally. Totally. <laughs> you know, find, find something that, is different that relates to your original inspiration and your truth. You know, these are really truths that you're exploring. These, these, these are narratives. Um, I think most chefs who are in this category are people who can point to very early culinary moments that changed their life and stuck with them and they want to contribute to. So um, at the time when these cuisines, you know, again, to go to French, the classic, um, when they were developed, you know, there, there's a long history to how, what we might call French cooking, how it occurred and came to be, but um, there's still something to add to it. You know, these are not set in stone, finished um, magisteria. These, these are things that are, are living and dynamic and they can be added to. So whatever your take is, whatever your cuisine, um, there's something, there's always something to add to it. And uh, yeah, I just think that's a really interesting insight when you, when you talk about, um, that just stopping and do it. We I worked with a startup in 2018, towards the end of 2018, and we we would call it thrashing, where mm-hmm. you kind of when you're iterating on something, just kind of like uh, it's the it's the throw the spaghetti at the wall exercise, where it's just like you know what if we put a leaf on it, or what if you know what I mean, like just throwing out as many ridiculous ideas as you can, and then eventually something's going to stick. But but I, I think that's a really good um, point. And for anybody that's listening, where it's like well. You know, if I, I have an hour long commute to and from work, I can't just stop and, and cook. Um, there, there's always, you know, that, that day off time or, or, you know, you, you create that notebook 
technique where you kind of just, as long as it gets captured in a way where it's, you can revisit it with a little bit more clarity. I don't necessarily think that, um, you have to kill yourself if you don't, um, get to it right away. But I, I certainly agree with you with, on, on the regard of don't consume. Uh, it's that mentality create before you consume. Right. And I think it's so mm-hmm. easy. It's so easy in 20, 2019 to do that. One of the service tiers that um, we offer with our workshops and with product design is documentation. So we produce either physical or digital documentation that a chef can you know, store on the shelf. They can file it away. But the point is one of the ways that designers operate is something may not make sense in week two. Um, but it may make sense in week eight. And that's the point of doing multi-workshops. And so all of a sudden you discover something in week eight that illuminates what you, that little insight that you had in, in week two. And, and you just go, whoa, okay, go back to that. Hold on. Right. So, you know, I think quite a few chefs do keep diaries. They, um, they keep some records and, and obviously good kitchens function that way. But, um, that that ability to go back to what you what you found or what you you know you took a note of, that's that's the trick, um, and making connections out of all those things. I think because, because that's often where the magic is, right? When because those first few, whether them they're scribbles or ideas or or whatever initially pops up, is usually the the gut instinct, right? Like it's usually what either your creative uh, built up persona thinks makes the most sense right off the bat. Yeah, that's usually where the nuggets are. And I don't know what it is about that, but um, it's just a really interesting thing to hear you say that where it's like, usually, like you said, you can spend eight weeks on something and whatever you came up with on day six was actually the the right thing the whole time. Yeah. And a lot of designers do that. You know, they, in product design, we have this um, kind of like religious philosophy where your idea, your first idea, there's no way it can be the, the right idea. Huh. Um, and uh, when you're in school learning product design, you're if you produce your first idea, you'll you'll just get an F. Doesn't matter how good it is. Um, you you need to show process and evidence of turning it upside down, looking at every angle, um, completely wringing it dry. And you know it's not uncommon for young product designers to explore 500 ways to to achieve something. Um, but you know what's funny is a lot of the time your first idea is pretty damn close. Totally. And it's, 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 a, it's, it gets closer to being correct. The longer I think you, you spend as a product designer, you, you develop a sense of uh, the aesthetics, the, the way it solves the problem or realizes an opportunity. Um, and yeah, sometimes lightning strikes fast. So going back is, is the key. It's so funny how that works. You've, you've got a really interesting webinar that just happened today. Congratulations on that. And you guys specialize in workshops. So can you touch on that just briefly and kind of like talk people through, you know, what what goes what people can expect when they book a webinar or a workshop with Sue? And then, you know, because there are a lot of people that are into it. They're they're in restaurants or they're running restaurants or they're just about to get their first restaurant job at a creative place. So so, you know, pitch that for us a little bit and um yeah, I think I think people would enjoy what you guys have to offer. So, yeah. So um, these are short, actionable, uh, thirty-minute webinars that we offer, and we did the first one today. We did it on um, menu narrative innovation, 
And um, it's something you, it's a little taste of what you might experience in a more committed, um, you know, workshop uh, relationship with Sue. But the point is we can actually touch more chefs at once um, through a focused topic. And, you know, with today's menu narrative one um, in, in 30 minutes, you know, nothing's over 30 minutes that we did research and really found that that time fits the schedules of, of chefs. Uh, we do them on Mondays. We also found that that's one of the best times at noon Eastern. And um, in that webinar, there's a quick setup on um, what the topic is. We go through a framework, um, which is just a visualization of, of showing where to put information and, and um, some of the insights that you might have you know, agnostic of any type of cuisine. This could be a sushi chef, a Wagyu chef. This could be a um, vegan, whatever. And the the topics will apply to your type of cuisine and your operation. So we looked at today, um, you know, what is the classic menu? What are you seeing? What's the convention, the cliche? And, you know, everyone has seen the, pretty much every chef now is doing just the, a very simple um description of the dish and then they list the ingredients out and we almost call this like a guest list yep yep <laughs> yeah it's like if you went to a club you just see the names of who, who's in who's out yep yep um there there are ways to build narrative and menus and um some of the things that we shared today are around um whose voice are you using so uh there's really no voice in a menu like that not that that's bad you know it's fine um but a certain chef might benefit from having the purveyor or the grower talk about the ingredient on the menu. Um, tell me about the the tomato that you have grown from a heritage seed. Um, what's great about it? Why should I order it? Um, you know, menus can be long. They can be short. Um, they just have to be good experiences overall. And there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of voices you can bring in into the menu. Um, so our webinars try and take advantage of universal topics and uh, topics that get chefs doing design thinking, you know, like what are the insights that you can put up from your own restaurant on this framework? And, you know, they're, they're very limited. Um, we can only host about um, fewer than 10 people on these. Um, today we had six mm-hmm. and um, we're, we're looking to scale that and, and possibly and grow it. Um, but right now it's, it's been a really fun new venture for Sue. I want to bring up a, a bit because I have a video. The, the script is literally on my uh, desktop right now because it's a video that I'm working on. And the title of it is going to be how to talk about food. And I think it's a very, um, it might be out by the time that this podcast episode airs. I'm not entirely sure yet, but um, I think it's a very, the, there's a point that I bring up on it where I talk about there was this kind of very strange point in time when it was, I don't know if it was trendy or if it was safe to kind of do that menu descriptor with the slashes where it would, you know, it would be squab slash buckwheat slash celery. You know what I mean? And that was the dish on the menu. And I feel like what ended up happening because of that is, you know, whether you call it uh, copying or creative stealing or whatever, there's a lot of chefs that adopted that. And what ended up happening, at least in my opinion, is a lot of people kind of forgot how to write menus <laughs> because it, it, I, I understand it. I understand where it came from. It came from this place of like, you don't want to say, uh, herb roasted carrot with you know black salt and and whatever because then that creates an expectation in people's head. But I just think it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, finding that voice because um, I don't know maybe that's where some of the frustration comes from from people. But I think there was like this weird lost 
point in time where we we suffered from the very minimal style of presenting a menu uh, for the detriment of of people's menu creation. Yeah, and I think um, you know these these trends come from really good places. I think we are right now in an like a, a climate where it's great that chefs respect ingredients down to every single one. And they, they want their customer to leave their restaurant knowing what rape is or, um, you know, what a, a certain trickery might be. Or And I think the, those educational moments in a customer's experience are, are, are crucial. They like, I love going to a new restaurant and not being able to pronounce something or knowing what it is and asking the server, what, the, what is this thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, that's a fulfilling experience for me, but there are just so many other ways and uh, that you can explore narrative in a menu. Um, even one we were talking about today was um, taking the risk of the last person who ordered it describing the dish for the next person. Uh-huh. I mean, there, there are just things that are a little uncomfortable, but um, you're really curious what might happen. And uh, just testing out, you know, what if you were at a, th- a three-star and... Um, there was just kind of an abstract name and it was only just, you know, you, you look at how sommeliers describe wine and, the, and their use of adjectives and how articulate they are and precise. And they're almost better than writers. Absolutely. Um, it's like, what, what would happen if, um, yeah, the, the last customer ordered a dish got to leave the description of it. I think it, it builds a chain of understanding what the food experience is that that's pretty rich in my opinion. And it, you know, if, if, we're starting to get a very educated public on food and, and I think people are becoming more accustomed to talking about it or certainly accustomed to being critical about food. Um, it's not uncommon to just be at a regular place and, um, you know, send it back. It's, it's, it's blue, you know, like they're, they're using like French terms or something like that. So uh, I think we have a, a smarter public than, than we always know. I just think that's so interesting that all of this is starting to to tie together because hearing you say that is like it seems so crazy but when you when back to what you talked spoke about with uh distance and reverent naivete like if you come in and this is the first time you're tasting that dish that's the only uh version of that dish that you know and when you're so close to the to that dish as a, as a chef sometimes you can't see exactly how it's perceived by other people. And then also on another point that we already talked about, like if that is iteration number 17 of that dish, you know, how far away is it from where that original idea came from? Yeah. There's, there's a really cool game of telephone that could, that could happen. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe there's things are dynamic. You know, this is just popping in my head as we're talking, but, um, maybe the dish, you know, changes based on the way customers describe it. I don't know. I mean, you don't want to get into a bad product ever, but um, there are ways to engage with food that are are just different. And um, I think chefs can at least prototype and test some of these ideas to see how the market responds, you know? And um, I think we're becoming very used to certain conventions in restaurants that even five years ago would bring people in for the first time, Mm -hmm. they don't move people's needles anymore. And, um, you know, when you look at some of the market forces in, in certainly big markets, um, there's high risk, uh, very quickly. So you, you, you want to give an experience that you, you have a good intuition will, will bring reward and, um, people will love and, and come back to and tell others, but you also, um, 
you, you gotta, in, you gotta invade, you know, that's, that's the, the common denominator always. Absolutely. What you, you, you spoke about, you know, when you, when you will book, um, a, a, a workshop or, or a collaboration with Sue, there's kind of an interview process that you go through with chefs. I, I, I don't necessarily want you to kind of divulge that whole process, but can you give some examples of kind of maybe maybe examples of the questions that you'll ask in that interview or, or maybe kind of like the mindset that you go into that interview with um, just to kind of give people a sense. I, I just think that's a really interesting thing. And, and even just from our conversation, you would probably ask chefs questions that maybe they've never been asked before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, you know, what was your culinary insight growing up? Um, did this come from your childhood? Were you traveling as a young adult? Um, you know, tell tell us what that moment was for you that you decided this is what I'm going to do. Um, I, I think we also want to focus on chefs, not only their past, but their future. So describe the perfect night at your restaurant. Who's there? What does it sound like? What are they drinking? What are they eating? How long are they sitting there? Um, what time did they come in? Where's their car parked? What kind of car do they drive? What are they wearing? You know, go into rich detail about the perfect night at your restaurant. And the more ways that you begin to describe that, um, give data to me about um, what we should be focusing on. Like what what's really important to you in this operation and this investment of your life. Um, there's other things that are really valuable, like, um, where do you think there is room to innovate in your type of cuisine? You know, they, they're the expert on this cuisine, not me. Sure. So they might have, they, they should have some inklings at least about, you know, if, if they're in Thai cuisine, um, maybe we go to a different region to find, um, a spice that, that barely is used, or, um, maybe we, only focus on one street in Bangkok and celebrate that street and do something with it. You know, it's, it's kind of like those little micro fascinations that particularly like a restaurant like next has taken advantage of. Yep. yep. But you know, we want, we want it always to be associated with building a brand for the chef. Um, that is one of the ways they will survive and they will thrive. Um, and then complementing that brand with experience so that you know, I don't want to get too lofty into um, ideas that just become unaccomplishable. We want to be held to deadlines. We want to be held to um, market value. We want to be held to um, parameters and, and things that, you know, we have to respond to. But uh, we want to keep the thinking big too. So, you know, it's important when you interview someone, regardless of who it is, what type of cuisine, we have to understand their head and we have to understand their heart. Um, you know, those two things in, in alignment when they overlap to, to us create the insight. Love it. Love it. So this is a, I don't know, it, it's not a loaded question. It's it's just there with your background and the amount of industries that you've, you know, dabbled in and, and you know, kind of worked with people, various professionals in different industries you could have gone into doing this for app designers or you could have gone into doing this for, you know, painters. Why chefs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, certainly a personal interest. Um, I grew up in a home where food was valued. Um, I had my own culinary experiences that were valuable and, um, it's a, 
it's a genre that I care about. And actually, I never got to work with an advertising. So um, I see. It, to me, it's new. It's a new exploration. It's a venture. It's um, it's an adventure, and and I like that about it. Um, secondly, I think I'm seeing the alignment with my background in advertising and brands as um, an extension of you know creating experience. Uh, that's kind of the common denominator when you're building brands and working on them is you're trying to create authentic, great experiences. Um, so I'm fascinated with that with restaurants. Um, I think when you consider the future of product design, and we're very close to this happening, um, chefs in the, the culinary category make a great pairing for where product design is going. We are entering very quickly um, the ability to not only rapid prototype, but um, rapid manufacture and smaller, more nimble clients like chefs. I mean, they, they I think they, they, they bring about an opportunity in product design that hasn't been fully explored yet. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, they might be more used to working with people who we, you know, we, we would say are in the crafts or in the trades, um, ceramicists, glass blowers, people like that. And, you know, we, we, I, I love what those people do. They're, they're incredible and they have such specific knowledge, but when you only have access to partnering with a glass blower or, a you know, someone throwing stone, um, that limits what you can do. And when you go through a designer, you're able to, maybe one thing goes to a ceramicist, maybe the rest of them go to, um, a new, a five axis CNC machine that can do something that's never been done. Maybe it goes to, a a vacuum forming specialist who can produce something that the world's never seen. Um, there's so many amazing prototyping and uh, manufacturing services that are becoming open now. And I think um, when you put those two things, when you overlap them, there, there's some exciting things that could happen. Um, I think working with chefs is important. It connects us to the environment and to culture uh, in, in really relevant ways. Um, you know, it, the, I think we're starting to see it's certainly in urban areas, the more that people engage with restaurants, the more connected they are to, you know, food systems. Um, people use them in ur- urban environments more and um, the more you can affect and, you know, craft that experience. I think that you have an opportunity to educate and to accomplish some environmental goals, but um, just also connect them in a real way to what they're ordering. I mean, same thing with food markets. You, you see what you, you, you don't have any middleman there as much. Right. So it's important. Um, I think it's inspiring that design came into the the world of chefs very naturally. They, you know, I saw it with Grant, obviously I've mentioned that and a few others, but um, it, it, it wasn't forced into the industry and it it wasn't, um, it didn't pop up in the industry to, you know, self-aggrandize or have any immediate monetary value. It just was cool. You know, like it was like, what if we did that? Um, what if we brought something to the table in this way and used, you know, certainly they wouldn't call it a design process, but what if we, you know, sketched out on the whiteboard, this new menu and it interacted in in a different way. Um, so I see that natural fit that happened as an opportunity to evolve it and, and for me to add the next level. Um, and uh, I just, I care about the future of restaurants. I think they, they need to exist. They should exist. And um, they're going to be increasingly under market forces that they, they need to be armed and navigating. 
So the more that we can innovate on the table, but uh, the more we can um, potentially step back and innovate on the business end too. So that's a, a very lofty goal of Sue is to um, work with a chef in some of the founding ways that they're organized and how they relate to their customers and their service tiers. But um, you know, it's kind of like that we have a target customer and we also have a target moment. You know, we talk about that at Sue. Sure. Uh, I love to work with so many types of chefs, obviously target customer. Great. But there's a moment where it's most actionable to work with them. Um, I would describe that moment as, you know, the venture moment. They've decided to do this. They have some funding. Let's talk. You know, they're used to being put into design relationships, um, maybe at a high level with the architecture, the interior architecture, the interior design, uh, the branding, the executable deliverables in the rest- in the restaurant. Um, but that's the moment where we can be the most helpful and the most um, actionable. And I, I hate to not downplay it, but I feel like some people can think about um, the way that things are presented and think that, you know, maybe it, it ends up being gimmicky or it ends up being um, not forced. But I, I think when, you know, you're in a city like Chicago or, you know, when we were in, when I was working in Napa, it was like a lot of people were getting their produce from the same people. And a lot of times your guests have, you know, everybody has the same five tastes that their tongue can detect, you know? So it's like, there are some of these variables that are sometimes fixed and sometimes you don't have control over that. But to, I mean, what you're basically saying is that through design, you can in effect come up with a signature or like, you know, an identity almost when, you know, a way to, a way to, to, to make it uniquely your own. And I think that's, that's, of at least a valuable takeaway from from what you just described. Yeah, you know what, what you made me think of there is um, hip hop. Yeah. So hip hop has kind of like the simplest conventions ever. You know, four four, a few different types of beats, um, percussions, and what they've been able to do with that format and scale it is limitless, endless, has evolved for decades now, and. Um, I think you could, you know, the parallel exists in the, in the chef world, you know, you could be a restaurant with, um, 10 ingredients, six spices, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I believe that that could last you your, your entire lifetime. You right. probably would never reach the end of what you could do with, with, with that little playground. Sure. Maybe you answered it already with this, you know, kind of like wanting to be in on the ground floor with a chef, but I wanted to ask what would be a win for you with Sue Design, and this can be, you know, the, we want to execute this kind of project, or maybe it's a, a, a vision a couple years out. What wh- what is that point when you feel like Sue has won? Mm. Well, we're never in the business of winning. Right. We are in the business, and I know what you get, what you're what yep. you mean by that. Yep. But yep. Um, related to it, it's it's really supporting chefs and. Um, you know, I think a win for us is having them seeing that moment where they see their um, their process, their interests, their expertise in a culinary um, experience uh, ignite and go in a new direction. All of a sudden, they've they've we've collaboratively found a, a new avenue, and you kind of have to operate like you're on the the margin of of a discovery at all times. You know, like. It can be you can it can be really frustrating sometimes too though I think when you when you want that outcome and it's not happening you can't force it so um, 
we want to keep them in anticipation of of finding that next thing, make them, you know, keep them as um, as much in the 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 journey mindset as, as possible. But um, you know, the big win is is just empowering them through design, what it, what it can achieve. It's it's we've seen it create predictable results for companies for decades now. And, you know, we go back, Adam, I don't know if you're familiar with the Eames. The Eames. Um, the husband and wife. No. So they were a famous uh, design duo who operated an office in California. They worked for furniture company um, Herman Miller and IBM and a few other clients. Got it. And they were sort of like pioneers in design. They, they began to see it as a process, not just as a, an object or a, a thing. And, um, you know, from there, their practices and began to scale with other companies and um, design thinking was born. And, um, you know, the, com- the companies that are, are really winning in the market now are the ones who use design to understand their customers, what their customers want. Um, we don't always do it what the customers want, by the way. You know, it's uh, customers don't know what's possible. Correct. And, you know, if, if you, if you're looking at Yelp reviews, the parallel here, I would just say, stop looking at them. There's, there's <laughs> zero, there's zero value in that. Um, yep. you, you may learn something about, um, your front of the house experience, you know, where someone had to park, but beyond that, there's just zero value. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a difference between what people say and what they mean. Well, and there's, so it's, there's also, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt you, but there's also yeah. that, that whole thing of people are never as good as you say you are, or never as bad as you say you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I just think that's an interesting insight. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I saw an Instagram post the other day that uh, just had a, you know, kind of a chalkboard in front of a, a coffee shop and it said, um, Come try the world's best or the world's worst coffee, according to Yelp. Uh, <laughs> it's just kind of like yep. you know nobody takes this stuff seriously anymore. But mm-hmm. I, I feel sorry for the chefs who are who feel so beholden to it. I mean, it, just let it go. It's it's one subjective experience, and you know, look at your numbers. That that's what's telling you the truth. Sure. Um, so yeah, the the win is. Um, helping chefs discover their, their culinary passion in a new way, uh, finding that, that, that next road, being a partner for that journey and, um, you know, producing some products and, and some things that don't exist yet. You know, we're here to make stuff. We're here to um, produce value. And, um, you know, the other, the other part of this that I haven't talked about yet is through the production of the, these products, whether it's a piece of stemware, flatware, a plate, um, we see an opportunity to go to market with chefs. Uh, we have tiers of this. You know, it might be a product that is only for sale in the restaurant. It might be a co-venture that we invest in and we go to um, distribution and, and marketability. It might be something that um, we sell the IP to and, you know, share the profits with chefs. And, you know, maybe a different manufacturer picks it up and makes it. So we're trying to further monetize uh, the business model that a chef has and, um, you know, be partners in success for that. Smart. I love it. The question I was going to ask you next was going to be related to product and it can get super philosophical. It can also be kind of very cut and dry, but what I'm curious to hear what you think makes a stellar product, whether that's identifying qualities or, or, or simple things that it does. Um, yeah, where is where is your head at with 
what makes a good product stand out. Mm, yeah, there's a few things. And as you said, it's, it's kind of a big discussion, especially in product design circles. But uh, number one, I think it has to solve a problem. It has to either do that or realize an opportunity. Um, if it's not solving a problem or bringing some sort of value that didn't previously exist, it has no purpose. Um, so I think it also needs to have a sensitivity to the insight that brought it about. And one of my favorite examples of a good product that does this is, have you ever heard of the Brevel toaster? Do you know that brand? The Brevel. So I have a, a fryer by them. I have a immersion blender by them. I'm familiar with the brand is what I'm trying to get at. And I know that they can take things that, like you said, like a, like an oven and add a couple of features that just make it either more simple to use or uh, what have you. But what, 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 what specifically about this oven? Well, the toaster that Brevel makes, um, they, and they tasked their design team with innovating the toaster, which you think like, well, how on earth would we do that as a toaster, right? Sure. Um, but, you know, they did a lot of research. They talked to people. And in those conversations with users, they kept hearing the phrase, um, you know, I, I cook it, but I, I don't want to put it for the whole time because I'm, I'm scared I'm going to burn the, the toast. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty universal uh, experience with toast makers. Um, so they looked at all their data, they put it on the wall with the post-its as you've probably seen. And they, they noticed that they kept seeing, um, you know, I wish it could just be done a little bit more, a little bit more. Yeah. And that was the phrase that popped out. <laughs> so if you look at the Brevel toaster, there is a button on it that only says a bit more. Wow. And, you know, you think of, um, what that took to actually sell in the meetings by the design team to um, to take that risk in the marketplace. And, you know, you look at toasters and you've got the, the numbers on them, one through six usually. Uh, a lot of people don't know those correspond to um, minutes. And originally the first toaster brand that did that, um, cor- they, had, they had one through six minutes, but we've kind of lost the MIN on it. Yeah. And people don't have any, you know, clue what these, what these things mean. Sure. So, um, yeah, they, they just put that little button on it and it's whimsical. It's fun. It makes you want to make toast. You know, everyone knows what that means a bit more. Like I, you don't need to know mm-hmm, <laughs> anything mm-hmm. more than that. So to me that that's a really fun product that that's successful. Um, I think great products remain relevant over time. Mm-hmm. They, they prove their worth through sustained use and, uh, they're not just here for, they're, they're not an iPhone, you know, there's, that's a big whole nother conversation, but uh, they, they don't become obsolete. And if they do, they're, you know, they're able to be upcycled or something like that. Um, I think there are products that should exist. And, um, you know, when you look at uh, someone like Daniel Hume over at 11 Madison Park, uh, he has four criteria that go into a dish that they create. And one of those criteria are that, um, you know, it, it, it adds to the history of these ingredients. You know, we're not just making things for Instagram. We're not just making um, wow pieces. You know, we're actually trying to add the next layer with these things. So I think that there's there's an imperative that, that it should be around. Um, one of my favorite kind of experiences that with products that I love, um, I, I'm, I think you have to connect with them viscerally and fast. So there's kind of a sequence of, of events that happen in the brain when you expose to a product. You know, it could be in front of you physically or digitally online, maybe. But 
it has to start with, I must have it. You know, I have to have that. Thing. Right. Right. Second is what is it? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yep. I don't know what that thing does, but I have to have it. Uh-huh. Um, and then I think once you've accomplished those two things within a few moments, if someone starts asking, well, how much is it? You've already done a lot of the hard work. Right. So, you know, we are visceral, visceral creatures, you know, and that's another reason why I'm interested in the food world. Um, you put a plate of food to someone, it hits the reptilian part of their brain sooner than other parts. Um, and I, I really like a lot of design that, you know, it's, it, it, it might be put by some of the more traditional engineering product enthusiasts as, you know, beautiful design or, um, aesthetic design, but, um, I like combining the aesthetic with the, the utility. And so as long as, you know, it tells a story, it, um, should exist, it's made well, it's not destructive to the environment and it, um, you know, it's, it, it does that. Wow. That human factor, uh, then I love it. I think I, I hate to bring up the, the thing that you said initially, cause we have talked at nauseum about going with your gut, but that thing that you said right at the beginning where you were speaking about, it has to solve a problem or realize an opportunity. I think that's a very, very important point because, uh, to to bring it back to my point about the microplane, right? Like we didn't have any problem grading cheese. Like there were cheese graders out there, but to create these kind of like very thin, almost wispy pieces of, you know, whatever you could put through it, this tool that had never been done before. So to like realize that, wow, you can do something else with this is, is that realizing an opportunity uh, piece mm-hmm. to it, which I think is really, really important because I mean, in all reality, was the microplane solving a problem? Maybe like it lasts a little bit longer than a normal cheese grater, uh, X, Y, Z. But I think, I think that was a really important thing for people to, you know, because it, you can often get caught up in your head where you, you have this product that you're thinking of or, or, or what have you. And it's, well, it doesn't technically solve a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. don't stop there kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? That's where I'm trying to, to get people to to not 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 just stop if it doesn't, um, you know, it's not the next pepper mill kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot of product designers always go back to um, the OXO pillar. Uh huh. Uh huh. So this was an interesting case. Um, some of your listeners might be interested in, but um, you know, the insight with the OXO pillar was uh, the the wife of the founder had arthritis. And, you know, at home, he could see her struggling with the, the old kind of metal peeler that everyone's seen, everyone's grandmother probably had. And um, he researched for quite a while, actually, uh, what the far ends of the spectrum need in terms of a product. So he studied, you know, the, the dysfunctional needs of people with arthritis and where they struggle. And then he balanced that with the high end. And he actually went to chefs and he said, here's a prototype. Would you buy this? Would you use this? Does this look good? Does this fit your needs? Does, are you proud to have this peeler? Mm -hmm. Um, and by solving for those two extremes of the market, uh, he ended up solving for the entire market. And that's, that's kind of the insight you want to take a look at with, with product is who are the, the outliers and the extremes, um, and, and focus on them. And then you can, you can bring something really valuable. You know, that's for more utilitarian stuff. Um, Sue's sweet spot is really the customer experience. And so things that translate the chef's narrative and point of view to the table are really where we want to be. But, you know, we certainly won't turn down any, any good problem, I would say. Totally. And that's actually a perfect segue into a couple um, rapid fire questions I wanted to ask you. 
And the first one of that is, what is a common mistake that you'll see new designers or even chefs who don't have experience with product design, uh, what are some common mistakes you'll see them make, at least when they're starting off? Uh, in my point of view, uh, in the interviews I've had with chefs, um, sharing Sue with them in, you know, very quickly, the charts are brought out. Mm. Um, the Excel documents that they live by, they, they need to, you know, mm-hmm. I get it. Yep. But they have this quick reaction of my customers won't pay for it. Uh-huh. And I think different markets experience that to varying degrees. Um, you know, you certainly, you know, Savannah, we have a food scene here that's, um, it's really hybridized. I, I, we have locals who support uh, a lot of restaurants here that are fantastic, but we have a high influx of tourists. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're tourists who want popcorn shrimp and um, things like that, but there, there are ways to innovate, you know, like I, I, there are ways to surprise and there are ways to um, balance what that market is willing to pay for with um, adding the next layer onto something. So I, I, I'm still <laughs> working on my, my pitch for yep. promoting chefs who have that opinion mm-hmm. of very quickly dismissing um, what the market will pay for. Sure. And, um, you know, I think with designers, you know, it's always a fight of style over substance. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. want to always have a substantive product. We want something that brings value. But um, a lot of us got into design because we're artists and we're, we're sculptors and we're um, the, you know, people who respond to creativity that way. So, um, we want to apply our creativity in a way that, um, serves market need. And so, you know, a lot of designers end up designing for other designers. They, they do stuff that, you know, just, um, gets a lot of likes on Instagram from other designers. They're really insular. They're focused on the same community. And, you know, I think you, you see a little bit of that same parallel with chefs. I was you know, just going to say, don't get it twisted, man. Like it, it exists just as much with chefs. Yeah. You know, I think mm-hmm. that that's inevitable in any discipline or totally, industry, right? Totally. I mean, car guys love cars, mm-hmm. you know, period. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, we have to keep in mind who our audiences are, who our markets are, who our customers are. Um, how, how are they responding to it is the question. And, if it's beautiful and, you know, moves, moves their needle. Great. Um, I, I was going to go with what, what is your best meal in recent memory? And you can answer that, but I was also going to kind of tweak it because you seem like the kind of person when you go out to eat, you notice things that, you know, either just chefs would notice or like the, the lay person would not notice going out to eat. So has there been anything in recent memory that's was like a mind blowing presentation or a really good service experience that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, I think, you know, two come to mind. Um, they're both in Savannah here. One is at a new restaurant that opened called the Fitzroy. Okay. And, um, the chef's name is Kyle Brown. He's doing a fantastic job over there. So he's got a polenta dish that I had on Friday night with, um, a duck special. I like the duck was fine. It was great. Um, but this polenta that he, he sourced, you know, it's from, um, somewhere local here and, and a really crafted process and it was perfectly served and wonderful. And it was like this little cake. And, um, I, I like those moments where the main dish, um, becomes the, 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 the sub dish. Yep. 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 <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I ordered the duck, but now I'm kind of digging the polenta here. So it's funny how that uh, happens. Yeah, I could almost see it switching. You know, you make the polenta the main course and you complement it with a smaller amount of duck. Uh-huh, I mean, obviously uh-huh. there's some, some market problems there, but it's sure. an insight. Um, 
And um, I remember recently too, or actually last winter, this was so over at um, a restaurant in town called The Vault. It's um, kind of a fusion Eastern restaurant. Uh, it was a cold night in Savannah, you know, odd. It was about 35, which is really strange for for this area. Um, long line, you know, there's no reservations over there. It's, it's a pretty, you know, you can get out for about $25 a person. Sure. Um, so we waited for an hour, three of us. We were cold the whole time, left our jackets on because a lot of restaurants here don't plan for the heat. You know, we don't have any of those double doors. Yep. And, um, the restaurant was freezing. I, we were s- seated at a little table by a door by the, um, the patio and, um, the door kept opening more cold air was blowing in. So I think this is about an hour and a half before we even got to order. Wow. Um, and so on paper, bad experience, right? But I ordered, um, because I was cold, I ordered, um, a soup that I'd never, even thought to order. It's like a little Thai soup, coconut with a f- like fish and um, some mussels and some other st- and shrimp in it. And um, didn't really look at what I was ordering. Just ordered the soup because I was cold. It came fairly quickly, and um, it was in such a small little dish. I didn't really know what was in it, so it was just amazing because I was super hungry. I was uncomfortable. Um, the flavors just really, really popped, and I didn't look at the menu. So I kept kind of going and I'm like, how much stuff is in this? Little yeah. Bowl? Yeah. I couldn't believe that there was fish and mussels and shrimp and it just kept, it's, I couldn't wrap my brain around how this little thing existed. And I, so my insight there was, um, I liked being hungry. I liked being uh-huh. uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people can think back to meals in their life that, um, satiated them, you know, that real experience of sati- satiation, Sure. Um, satisfaction you know, I, I don't, is the other word. Yeah. 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 Satisfaction, mm-hmm. um, getting that, that, that primal need filled. And I, I'm interested in maybe how chefs play with hunger. You know, you, you think of an, a parallel industry. We've, we've been talking about this, but, um, doctors can ask their patients to fast before they come in. Yep. Why can't a chef do the same thing? Totally. Um, and I don't know how we would achieve that, but it's an interesting question. So, yeah, kind of like in those two ends of the spectrum. Like one was a really, you know, they both have an element of surprise in them, I would say. I think that's a very interesting insight because that's, uh, uh, I'm struggling to find the word that is, it's not taboo, but it's a little anti-hospitality, I think, for chefs to kind of wade into those waters of this dish will give you a different eating experience if you consume it when you're cold, you know, or you know, say, um, I, you know, I've played around with, uh, thinking about dishes where, you know, it's a, it's two people. And so this came from a a thing that my girlfriend and I often do where, you know, we both love eating, eating out. So we will go out to eat. We'll order two separate dishes. The server will present one to me and one to my girlfriend. And then her and I will swap halfway through, which is something that everybody does at one point or not right so the funny part was would always be when she would say that the dish that i ordered was better than hers and it like elicited this emotional response for me and for her and i think it could be cool to have two servings of the menu where you know you serve two people where one person gets the quote unquote better dish than the other person and then to equal it out so they don't have both a bad experience it happens again in reverse um it's just an interesting an interesting thing and then there there was another dish I was thinking about where um, 
and maybe you're the person to ask about this because it's been in my head since the summer. If you've ever had a, a drumstick, like the frozen things with the nuts on top and the cone and there's the little chocolate bite at the bottom. Of course. Yeah. Finding a way to engineer a dish. I can't I can't personally think of another dish where the last bite is intentionally different and quote unquote better than everything that you've had before that bite and how to engineer a dish to be either plated or consumed in that way where you know you can't you can't realistically bite the bottom off of a drumstick cone because the rest of that experience is going to be miserable so everybody just naturally waits and makes it the last bite um mm-hmm. just something that i've been like a couple of weird kind of um plating or or food ideas that i've just been playing around with in my in my head yeah now that that reminds me of another dish i've seen recently um i was over at uh, a place in town here we we have called the Griffin Tea Room, and they uh, they do some pretty innovative little desserts. Um, but one one came to our table, and I was with um, the the dean of the School of Design here at SCAD, and so he, the, the chef actually makes dishes for him and waits to prototype them with him when he's sure. in there. Yep. So he's kind of like that rapid response. Anyway, this dish came to the table, and and she had really worked hard. She um, had a mound of. Um, what looked like sugar on with a, a, a dish made of ice on top of it with some sorbet. And, um, you know, it, it, we, it sits, gets the table put down, he starts eating it and midway through, he realizes what he thought was sugar was, is salt. And it's, wow. it's eroding the, the ice of the dish and he could only eat it until the amount of sorbet and salt um, mixed at a, a kind of a right level. And then it became kind Unpalatable. of unpalatable. Yeah. Wow. But um, he was really overjoyed with it. And it was funny to me that like, I think sometimes great dishes aren't finished. Um, he he couldn't really finish it because it got <laughs> out of control. Sure. But uh, cognitively, you know, like in the other part of the brain where you really, the, the beautiful part of it is the idea. And um, he just loved it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've, I have a photo, I have a photo of like the process of it. And I just love that, uh, that, you know, a great dish doesn't need to be finished sometimes. You'll have to email that to me or, or, or text it to me and we can, I'll, I'll be sure to link it up um, so people can see it if, if you still have it. Yeah, I'll try and find the name of the chef cool. too. I'd be happy to send that to yeah, you. Yeah, perfect. Um, my next question, rapid fire style, is, is, is what can creatives like us be doing better to help the next generation? Hmm. Um, I think... Uh, giving people a chance who may not immediately deserve it. Um, when I go back in my creative career, my first creative director brought me on um, not because of the value of my portfolio, but because um, I actually had some like programming skills. This is back in the day with, with another programming language that doesn't exist, but he just kind of needed that and um, became a mentor of mine and really taught me a lot about art direction and, and graphic design and, had he not given me that opportunity, I, I wouldn't have been in the conditions that made me go to the next level. So I think, you know, especially, you know, a, a chef is different. You have to know certain things. You know, you have to know um, the, the mother sauces. You have to know how to use a knife. You have to know the difference between um, baking and, and broiling, obviously. Yep, yep. But there is a margin of, remember, people don't know everything. And I think, you know, it being at Savannah College of Art and Design, one of the pieces of feedback we hear from students is 
they're, they're very aware very quickly of the talent level that they're surrounded by and it's intimidating. So try and I, I think I always try and, you know, when I hire people, when I, when I bring people on freelance, whatever, um, what value does this person have beyond just the discipline that we're in? You know, like, do I, and how much do I need someone who can knock stuff out? You know, so I, I love, you know, people who are open, who are curious, um, take chances on them. That's great. It's something that has benefited me greatly too, because there's sometimes when, you know, you, you look back at, at a conversation you just had with someone that's a higher up than you. And you're just like, how did I, how did that just happen? Like, how did I just get this opportunity? And yeah, it's that, that right place, right time slash, uh, yeah, just like keeping yourself open enough to, to be there when, when the, I don't know. It's yeah, I, I completely agree. It's, it's a Saturday morning or, you know, your first day off after a work week, it doesn't have to be Saturday and you're, you're standing in front of your kitchen. How do you make your eggs for yourself? Mm, I love, um, a piece of cold pizza with a, a fried egg on top. Oh, that's <laughs> that, awesome. That's one of my favorite. I don't know. Like, I'm surprised that like brunch restaurants haven't picked up on that yet. That's just, super. I've, I can't say I've ever had that or made that for myself, but it totally makes sense now that you yeah, say it. Yeah, one of those this hangover things, but yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's a magical creation. Good one. Good one. Is there a book or, or, you know, a lecture series or a Ted talk that's been particularly impactful for you in your career that you're most likely to recommend to people? Yeah. Um, I think one of a, a really nice quick read that, I, that to me was one of the insights for Sue and would certainly bring value to, I think any chef uh, the book Zag, Z-A-G by Marty Neumeyer. Sure. Um, it's a quick 17-step process about um, rapidly differentiating your offering. So whatever type of brand you are, whatever type of service, um, make it applicable and make it different and how to make make the market respond to that. Um, I really also love his definition of a brand. It's whenever I'm asked about it, what a brand is, it's what I, what I share. Um his definition is a brand is nothing more than a, than someone's gut reaction at a moment to your product or service. Wow. So I love that because it, it just means that your brand can change and rapidly and your brand is actually different to everyone. Um, there are common denominators obviously with brands, but um, you know, how do I feel immediately about this company? What is it making me feel about myself? Um, those are all gut reactions. And, you know, that's kind of a theme of what we've been talking about, but it's true. Absolutely. Is- um, I really love the book um, Chaos by James Glick. Okay. It's um, it's kind of kind of wanders into mathematics, but it's it frames a lot of just the way that um, the world operates. And we think it's, you know, it's brought about by these strict processes, but um, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, it's It walks through chaos theory and, you know, it's, there's a little part of it that, you know, relates to that Jurassic Park um, droplet on the hand that everyone's seen, but um, it's a broader theory that I think a lot of designers can leverage. Um, So yeah, those those are two of my recommendations. Awesome. Is there a product that, you know, if someone presented it to you or um, there was just this huge trend that that flooded the market, uh, is, is there a product that you would say no to designing? Um, I don't make as many value judgments on, on the things that are designed. I think, you know, we, you either see the value in them or you don't, and you see how the market will respond. Um, 
I, I think things that I would personally steer chefs away from in working with Sue are very, what I would just determine to be low value mm-hmm. uh, ventures. So, you know, like a, a, a tablecloth that is, you know, made with a different material, like sure, it might be beautiful, but how does that contribute to your culinary vision? Sure. You know, like we shouldn't be investing in things from Sue's point of view that don't um, celebrate and build that culinary vision. Um, so to me, those are things I, I try and, you know, steer the the process a little away from, um, you know, and, and things that other companies do better than we do. So, you know, we're not going to um, try and compete with Joseph and Joseph for sure. um, a strainer. We're not going to um, try and beat Black and Decker at their own game. We're not going to do outdo OXO in term of in terms of ergonomics. Um, but the, con- the contributions we can make are really in that category of you know what what celebrates your narrative. Um, Got it. Yeah, love it. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you just won an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant, and when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk with waiting to have dinner with you. What restaurant is it, and who is that person? Hmm. Um, I really do want to go to Central. You know, that to Absolutely. me, that's one of that's one of the, the just the 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 pinnacle of n- narrative happening mm-hmm. in innovation, kind of like what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know who I'd want to go there with. <laughs> <laughs> it could, I, I, so, does it change if I say that that they could be living or dead? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess we can come back to it. You know, maybe someone who specializes in is narrative. It'd yeah. be interesting to go there with Shakespeare. It'd be interesting to go there with um, uh, Walt Whitman. Yep. I don't know. Yep. How about Walt Whitman at Central? Perfect. Do, have you done any research on their their other restaurant that's like e- supposed to be even a little bit more experimental? It's called Meal. I've heard of it. I don't know much beyond that, though. Man, I mean, if Central is, I don't know, you would call it the like the Puyol or the um, Manresa. Um, there's meal is supposed to be even more um, involved on you know the research and the education side of things. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I, I, if you ever get to make it down there, definitely uh, check out both. I had a friend who went to both and said it was just it felt like visiting another planet. So. I totally see where your head's at with all that. Yeah, I like that. I mean, <laughs> visiting planets is, is <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, Hopefully we have restaurants and other planets. 100%. I would be so on board with all that. Uh, well, listen, man, is there anything else that you want to say or a message that you want to get out to everybody? Um, I think I would end it with uh, the just sharing that you're catching um, Sue Design in a very uh, interesting moment. Um, you know, as a new consultancy, we are completing that first phase of, you know, getting it right and getting the, the model, the service tiers correct to really serve chefs. We've done a lot of work on that effort. Um, it's ready to go. We are actively looking for the right clients and the, you know, the right partnerships. And, um, it'd be incredible if someone out there is that right fit. Um, we're purposefully a little bit of a vague company. So, Really, the only way to find us is, I mean, we're on the website. It goes to Instagram. Instagram is the hub of, of Sue Design. And, um, you know, that's just where we want to be active. Um, so conversations begin typically on Instagram. And, um, you know, once we start having them, they're very loose. But we we love when, when they become 
um, actionable partnerships. And so, um, yeah, just, just really interested in any loose ideas out there in the, in the culinary world that we might be able to help solve. And you're clearly allowing your customers to also inspire you, right? In, in, in the same way, not to, not to downplay the fact that you said that it's an, an, a little bit of a nebulous company, but I think that you're, you're giving yourself that, that headspace, that breathing room to allow for, for yourself to be a little bit more flexible as opposed to saying, you know, we, we specialize in, uh, pan Asian aesthetic and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's really true. You know, we're, we'd love to partner with anyone from, you know, sashimi chefs to a hot dog stand. Totally. And, um, there, there's insight and innovation that can happen in both and that, that full spectrum. So, um, you know, one of the, Differences with a lot of consultancies that you look at, certainly in product design, is they have these huge um, just totem portfolios that are, are evidence of all their partnerships and work and, and reasons why you should hire them. Um, Sue, you know, really going to our core DNA as a company, we support, we are kind of in the background where it's not about us. Um, so you, when you go to our website, you don't see any of our work. Um, you, you, you see a bit of it on Instagram and it's there, but really the evidence of, of our work will be in the future um, things for sale in partnership with chefs. So our store is going to be more of, of the evidence of things that we've brought to the table and now we're bringing to the market. And um, so, you know, we're just trying to evolve what a consultancy should be. It's, it's, it's more about the network. It's about um, bringing the value and, um, you know, just the right amount of relationships that sustain us and allow us to grow. Um, but uh, we're, we're trying to evolve also what a consultancy is in the same way that we're hoping chefs evolve what their restaurants are. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have caught you at this stage in the, in the journey. I think that, uh, you know, you and I don't, we, we think on very similar planes. I think we have uh, context with a lot of, of each other's uh, points of reference. And I, 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 I don't see this being the last conversation that you and I have. So I really, really appreciate you being on the show, man. Yeah, same with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks so much, man. All right, that's the end of the interview. As promised, I'm publishing a bonus bit of the interview for Patreon supporters exclusively because as after I said my thanks to Christopher, we actually had a side conversation after the fact um, when the interview stopped recording uh, about Martin Kastner and Crucial Detail, which some of you might know is very similar in that space where they actually worked with Grant Ackett's, uh exclusively, uh, and then they helped develop a bunch of stuff for the aviary. They also went on to design some pieces for the Boku's door, and he's just kind of a legend in the space of... Of, uh, designing for chefs exclusively. So that's actually going to be a bonus piece of content available to all tiers on Patreon. Everybody's eligible for that. So that little bonus is kind of a thanks from me to you. If you want to check out Christopher online, he's at Sue Design on Instagram. And as mentioned, everything that we might have covered, the photo of that melting salty dish, and yes, even a piece of cold pizza with an egg on top as a photo are available in the show notes on justincona.com slash podcast. And hey, while you're there, get yourself on the email newsletter because I'm using that as kind of a way to collect certain bits and bobs of information that don't necessarily make their way into larger videos or Instagram stories, but I still want to share them because I think that you will like them. So I send that out about once a month and I would love for you to sign up. Most of you are also following along on Instagram and you know that I've got a road trip coming up. I'm heading to New York City, Chicago, Kansas City, tentatively Salt Lake City. We might take a a more Southern route because we're taking a Mini Cooper instead of a SUV. And then we will uh, head to Napa, San Francisco, and then up through Portland and then get to Seattle. So if there's anybody in any of those cities that you'd like to see me interview, 
review for the podcast, please send me that in an email that's available on, uh, if you go just to my site, justinconnor.com, there's a button right there that says contact. That's the best way to send me anything that you um, have as far as suggestions for chefs or farmers or knife makers or anybody that you think would be a good fit for the show. Um, You're the person that listens till the end, so you're the type of person that I want uh, to suggest those people to me. Also, one more quick housekeeping thing at the end of the show here. Anna and I will be heading to L.A. at the end of February for a couple of days, and I'm working to schedule some sort of meetup where we all get tacos together. Uh, A couple of you have reached out that you are in L.A. and you want to meet up, and so instead of like doing a bunch of different one-off coffee meetings where we're either sitting in traffic trying to get all around the city, I want to just schedule one big meetup where we all get dinner together and we can share some tacos, Um, and it'll be awesome, and it'll get some face-to-face time with a couple of you. Uh, You'll get to meet Anna, which a lot of people... Uh, haven't done yet, which is going to be kind of cool. And so I think that will be scheduled in the next couple of days here. I'm still trying to figure out uh, itineraries because I have so much travel coming up. But if you want to get on, I don't know, like the short list of that so that I know exactly who to email, uh, same same way. Go to my site, check out justinconnor.com. There's a contact button and just include in the subject something along the lines of like, I want to come to the taco thing and I will totally hook you up with that. Okay, that's everything I got here. Roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me.